Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am here with author Debbie Weiss. Debbie, thank you so much for being here. Megan, thank you so much for having me. I want to ask you the question I generally start with, you know, on the podcast, which is just tell us about how you came into the world of grief and loss. Well, my mom died when I was 10. Um, It was very odd. She seemed fine, but the summer before my 10th birthday, she became ill. Um, Mm -hmm. Her body just simply failed. I I don't know why. She was a healthy 42-year-old woman. And four days before my 10th birthday, she she died. She'd had a heart attack in the hospital. It was pretty dramatic because one night, you know, she was that summer she'd spent in, in her room closed up. My dad said, don't bother her. One night he says, we're going to the hospital. And a few weeks later, she, she died. Um, wow. wow. And you have memories of that. And I'm imagining that you have things that are connected to the other pieces of your life that are marked by that experience. Very much so. It made me a very cautious person. I stayed close to home, you know, because I knew from, from being 10 that uh, the people you love can vanish at any time, right? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, my poor father, he, he traveled for business, but he'd have to make sure I knew that he was still there. And it, it made me extremely cautious. I went to college and law school pretty close to home. And I wound up marrying my high school sweetheart. Mm. You kept your footprint close. And it sounds like there was some fear connected to that, but you're saying this with a big smile. So it sounds like the staying close to home might've been connected to your mom's death, but was a pretty good life for you. It was, you know, it was a small life. I didn't do maybe a junior year abroad. I went to Mills College in Oakland, just no longer with us, sadly, mm-hmm. and the Davis Law School. But I was happy. My dad was an amazing parent. Um, I had a lovely suburban childhood. Yeah. And, um, then, you know, when I was 17, I started dating a, a George. He was a friend of the family. I'd known him since I was seven because our parents worked together. Oh my God, you have to be kidding. No, I'm not kidding. I met him when I was seven. He uh, was 11. We met at his parents' house pool party because his mom and my dad worked together. They're both scientists. And so we were together and I, you know, it wasn't a huge life, but I was, I was very happy with it. Wow. When in the scope of law school and all that, did you and George get married and start your official adult life together, considering you've known each other since seven? (laughs) Well, you know, I don't think we ever thought of ourselves as adults. You know, we never had kids and people say, why don't you have kids? And we'd say, oh, we're having too much fun being kids. We were both only children. Um, and you know, what's funny is we dated exclusively through my college law school. We moved in together when I was uh, 26 and passed the uh, 25, passed the bar and, um, had a job at out of law school, you know, very conservative stuff. Yeah. But, um, you know, we actually didn't get married till I quit practicing law when I was 40. George was, um, the tech lead on a program called Quicken, which is a personal finance program by Intuit. And we didn't get married until I didn't have a job so that our, our taxes would be lower. As he explained, we would have paid about 5,000 a year. Yeah. 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 Well, you were together all that time. And again, I mean, I think our audience can hear the smile in your voice. Um, Continue to tell us sort of the story because it's the story um, that you give us, as I would say, as a gift, which is that there's some dramatic loss in your life that involves George. So will you walk us through sort of what happened for you? I will. Um, you know, I, for a while, we both worked very hard. He was an engineer and I'm, I'm an attorney and I retired when I was 40. I was really stressed. I mean, be, being a litigator, an attorney was, was not for Ooh, me, at least yeah. a conservative, regular kind of law firm. So I quit. I didn't do that much. Um, George was a workaholic, he was self-described workaholic. So, you know, we, we had our, our times together and then he was roughly 49. It was 2009. I'm sorry. I'm not real good with the timeline dates exact, but in 2009, he came home one day and he said, well, quicken ships for the year. Okay. He said, so I'm going to go to the hospital tomorrow. That's okay. Okay, I mean, I, we don't usually say, you you don't usually just go to the hospital, like you're going to the grocery store, right? Okay, honey, 
I figured maybe it was a private mail complaint or a physical exam. And I came home six hours later the next day. I knew that was bad. Um, He said, there's tests. I said, well, what? He said, no, it'll be a week and I'll tell you if we get tests. Okay. And then he came home the week later and said, I have metastasized male breast cancer. Wow. Had you had a sense during that time? I mean, it sounds like he was working really hard. He knew something was going on with his health, but he attended to it when it was practical. And it sounds like you had a week where you knew something was going on. Did you have a sense that he was going to come back and give you, no, that was a totally shocking. I mean, male breast cancer is a pretty rare diagnosis anyway, right? Very, very rare. It's something like, I'm going to get this wrong. I I researched it before, but it's, it's like under 10% or something, or maybe more like one, 2% of all, of all breast cancers in men. Um, so definitely. And And he had, he knew right from the diagnosis that his had metastasized. He did because he'd had some, something wrong with his chest, which I hadn't really been aware of. And, um, by the time he had it checked out, it was metastasized. So how did that, how did that information land with the two of you? I mean, that's a whole lot to take in. Did, was it something where you understood the severity of the diagnosis? Did it feel like, oh, the two of us were kind of in la la land and thought, well, it'll be fine. How did you come to, to that piece of information? You know, what happened was George was, um, an extremely organized individual. I mean, he was responsible for the tech behind a huge program. And he always described himself as having almost infinite bandwidth. So mm-hmm. I remember him telling about the cancer with a big grin. And he said, and you know what? They also told me that it that there's a lot of treatments and it responds to everything. Wow. And he said, I will t- always tell you the truth, but you will hear it from me. And he said, we're going to be fine. So he was the general mm-hmm. contractor of his health. He was, he, he chose that and he went for chemo. He had a treatment plan at a normal local hospital, Kaiser, and he was comfortable with that. He didn't want to look at other things, but he excluded me from his treatment. He drove himself. He'd shop for groceries on the way home. It never really seemed to impact him very much. It impacted me. I, I talked about it all the time, but he really didn't. He just kind of went on with our lives as they had been. He didn't want to travel. He didn't, you know, he didn't want to change anything. It's interesting because it sounds like he was a grown up who went to his own doctor's appointments like he always did, even though this was cancer and he was optimistic or practical and that he did that on his own. And then it sounds like sort of maybe also on your, your own, you were not in the same state of mind about it as I think anybody wouldn't be, you had a much different reaction to his diagnosis and his treatment. When you talk about being excluded, which I imagine he believed was taking care of you, would you have chose differently? Well, at the time, you know, my mom died at the same hospital where he was getting treatment. And I believe at the beginning, he thought he was protecting me. Yeah. And I think his secondary motive was not to have it take over his life, which is something that I would have probably done. Yeah. Um, but it was difficult because I was getting all my info since he didn't let me call the doctors and all. I was getting my info through Google. And oh, I no. kind of Dr. Google. That's Dr. Not Google. No. And I, I, you know, and I snuck through and met his medical records. Yep. And I asked him to do things he just wouldn't do. And that was hard. Um, we weren't real close to his parents then, but I did want him to involve them. Yeah. And let them know he's the only child. And he wouldn't do that. I wanted him to take more time off work so that we would have more blocks of time. And he didn't want to do that. But I, I just sort of respected that because I mean, if Quicken was going to be his legacy, so be it. Yeah. I think you're talking about something really important. And honestly, I'm scanning all the conversations I've had. And I don't think I've had this one before, but I've certainly experienced it where your own need to take care of yourself about what is going on in your life, which is your husband has cancer is not necessarily in line 
with how your husband needs to have cancer. And I certainly experienced that with my parents, my dad, he wanted to see and talk to people. And I'm not sure he would have told them a lot about his cancer, but I think he liked being loved and cared about by people. And my mother was much more private. She was much more, you know, why would anyone want to come over while we're having a hard time? And, and in my mind, there's no right or wrong. You know, we do what we have to do, but when there are two people with competing needs, it's challenging to sort of um, make sure that all of those needs get met, I think, right? And I think certainly when children are trying to take care of their parents in their later years, you know, particularly if the parents aren't demented, like the, the mom and dad don't want to move out of the house and the parent and the children might be having a whole conversation about how they should and they, you know, talk to a realtor I have some energy in my chest about this idea that like, if you were taking care of your own worries and anxieties, you kind of had to do it on the sly. And I can really understand that. I can understand both your husband wanting to keep his medical information under his control and your need to know what the hell is going on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he had life insurance, um, you know, we took care of a few practical, basic kinds of things, but yeah. yeah, I really would have wanted to be more involved and looked into more of how to shape our lives because they were going to be, our lives together were going to be so much shorter yeah. than we ever would have imagined. And, and also just really dumb stuff, you know, like he had this, he was an engineer. He had this really complicated stereo system. I couldn't watch a flipping movie without him. Okay. You know, I mean, he had all the finances. Yeah. I, I still regret one of the last words I said to him was, what, where's your Wells Fargo password? Because he had everything in his control. And since he had, wouldn't acknowledge that he was dying or declining, I, I didn't know how to work with the most basic of things, which added a level of frustration that was difficult when things were already strained. Again, I think you're bringing up something that's really important, which is that there, you know, and, and you and I won't know this until we're closer to the end of our life. If we do that in a conscious way, that there are these ways in which people seem to need, even people who are like straight shooters and, you know, look all the hard things in the face, they need a bit of denial. And in order to do the hard thing of let go of a life and that makes sense to me. I mean, who, who am I to have any opinion about what it's like to be at the end of your life? However, when that is the way, what that ends up doing is putting like this very different kind of burden on the people who are left behind. My dad knew for a year that he was dying of cancer. It was really important to him to make sure that he had all the, his I's and T's and this is where this document is and this is where the keyboard is, but he didn't sign his DNR. I mean, I found it and it was, and I was like, surely this can't be, you know? And then I said to him, I found the document. He lived in Massachusetts and Massachusetts actually has this, they make you answer three separate questions about interventions. And he was like, I don't know. You'll have to ask your mother. And I was like, dad, literally, I can't ask anyone, but you, <laughs> it's you who has to decide this. And I remember calling my siblings and being like, you will not believe this. And part of me also feeling like, yeah, I think this might be the way this stuff goes down. Had he signed those documents when he was able in the, with a nurse and, and all the folks who needed to document that it would have been much simpler than what ended up having to happen. And it was hard not to carry some energy about that. Feel like, wow, you know, you could have cared for us collectively better. And I, I actually am not sure if that's true. He maybe couldn't, maybe that was literally the best he could do, but it is such an interesting conversation to hear people say, my partner, my parent, my colleague, kind of left these things for me to clean up later. Yeah, that was, well, he didn't, George went into denial. So he didn't think he was dying. That was, it got, it, it was very strange. He began by being very protective by yeah. saying, you know, I will take care of you. Pretend this isn't happening essentially down to, 
being in denial. And by the end, he thought he was recovering even as he was dying. And it, and it made no sense. And since he, I couldn't talk to his doctors, I discovered later he actually put an order in effect that they couldn't call me, which was crazy because I was always a pretty sane person. I mean, I'm a former lawyer. I, I could keep it together. And I was also surprised because at the point where if I had to make medical decisions for him or make decisions, I wouldn't be informed, right? His doctor didn't call me till he couldn't breathe on his own. At that point, she said, I'm so sorry. She was crying. She said, he has this order. I said, what order? Because otherwise we had a really good marriage. I mean, I believe. So that always, that threw me for a loop. Yeah. We, so, so walk me through that a little bit. Like when did... When did you begin to understand that the story either that he was telling you or the story that he believed himself wasn't exactly accurate? Probably about four months before he passed. You know, we had about four good years. He was diagnosed in 2009 and he didn't die till April of 2013. Wow. Okay. So that's actually kind of a long time with- So we had some years that were pretty, seemed okay. He got chemo. He got oral chemo. He always told me the doctor said he's doing great. I mean, he was driving himself this horrific commute to mountain to the Silicon Valley. If anybody here is from Northern California, they'd get that and doing this incredible work and just kept continuing on as we always had. But about four months before he passed, his body just really started to decline. And he went from walking to a cane to a walker. And I could see we were having problems because I was the one who was saying, honey, you've got it you've got to get a cane. We've got to get a wheelchair. We've got to get you a, a placard for the car, which he never did. We've, you know, I was the one telling him of the things that what we needed to do to, because he wasn't walking. And then eventually he was in a wheelchair. A few couple months in a wheelchair, he was doing great. You know, we did some home repairs together and had people in and we've, we functioned pretty well. Um, but then he, he was just really, really declining. And at that point, I could tell that he was dying and that he didn't believe it. He kept telling me, I know I'm getting better. And that also led him to refuse proper care, palliative care, hospice care at the end, all of that proper home health care. He, he rejected it all. So I was doing the home health care for a while and thinking I might be killing him because I'm not a trained nurse. Sure, sure. And so it was at the end, I was, I was going pretty crazy. It was, it was, it was not good. Well, it's a lot to take in, in only four months time. Four months sounds like it's a long time. And it is a long time when you were like, you know, living each day of being a caretaker, but in the scope of giving your mind time to sort of update the new data that we're going from a guy who's driving himself on a long commute to someone who's in a wheelchair and whose body is shutting down. That's a really speedy experience. And for people who don't already know this hospice has a little blue pamphlet. Um, I can't think of the name of the off the top of my head, although I'm surprised I can't think of the name and you can mail away for it or they'll give it to you, but it sort of talks about how, you know, the interweb of the organs that as your body begins to become unwell, it's a bit like shutting off the lights across, like, I don't know, the white house, like you start with the West wing and then you, and so that is what happens. It does take a few months, but you know, it can take a few days to a few months, but it sounds like that progression. Once it really started, it really took off. And then you were a caretaker, but you were a caretaker to somebody who was saying to you, I'll be better in a few days. That's true. Or or a few, yeah, he really, or weeks, but yeah, he really thought he was getting better. So So that was crazy. How did you handle that? Like, did you have a network of people where you could turn and say, this is so painful. He's not on the same page with me. Or was it sort of just the two of you and you head down and got the job done? Well, I'm ashamed of this a little bit. We were pretty isolated, so I really didn't have anyone to go to. I was talking to my dad a bit during that time, but he was having some of his own health problems. And um, again, George wouldn't involve his parents, which I'd wanted him to um, for the support and also because I felt they should have the last time they could with their son. And so I just did it on my own and I was very, very angry. I mean, I just was not in good shape. I did the best I could, but I yelled. I, I begged for more help. We got a little more help. I had terrible hives. I, I, and, you know, I'd go to the doctor and they'd say, oh, well, 
you know, we don't know what that is. Maybe it's midlife. And it's like, I know it's stress. Okay. And so I was on prednisone to suppress them, which is like being on cocaine, like really amped. But I didn't know what else to do. So I went to like a private dermatologist and I was like, I need more prednisone. Like, well, you're past what you're supposed to be on. I'm like, nope, I got a function. I got no choice. You know, if I go under, he goes under because I couldn't live with the the effects of the hives. It's funny looking back, but I really didn't know what we were going to do. And I started ultimately to try to make plans to put him in a compassionate kind of nursing home where he could get more care because I was so angry and not really well myself. Yeah. That, first of all, thank you for naming the anger, right? Because I think what what we think we want to hear is some Florence Nightingale story, right? That's what everyone likes to highlight is, and I've said this to my husband before, like, listen, if I end up with a degenerative illness of any kind, I need you to know I will be an asshole. And that like, that won't surprise (laughs) anybody because I'm an asshole if it's too hot outside. So, but we like the stories, right? And we like to report the stories of like, oh, they never complained once. Like, well, then there must've been a lot of denial going on because there was plenty to complain about. And it sounds like, you know, your body was taking in a lot of information. And what we talk a lot about on this podcast is the systemic physical experience of grieving. And, you know, hives are essentially a histamine reaction. Histamine reactions happen right under the surface of the skin. I have sort of chills when I say this, but I have a lot of respect for the body being like, listen, if you're not going to stop and acknowledge what's going on for you, we're going to show you, we're going to let you know that we know I'm a person who throws my back out. But when my mom died suddenly, um, I grew these crazy little bones inside my ear. It's a condition called extatosis, which like surfers in New Zealand get from being in the water too long. Now I grew up in the ocean, but I mean, I'm not a surfer. And the doctor was like, yeah, we have never seen this. I mean, the doctor literally was like, wow, this is really cool, which is not what you ever want to hear from a doctor. That, yeah, you have these little bones growing over your ear and you're at the rate that they're growing, you're going to need to have them drilled out of your ear, like in the next couple of months. And of course my job is as a therapist. I literally listen for my job. So the recovery was a disaster. You know, they were like, oh, well, it's a pretty, you know, the surgery is not so terrible. They cut my ears off my head and drilled bones out of it. And then I couldn't hear and had vertigo for, you know, two and a half months. It was an excruciating, terrible experience. And also when I look back, I'm like, yeah, my body was going to make sure that I didn't try to go back to work. My body was going to make sure that I understood exactly how impactful this death was. And so even though other parts of me were really trying to like, just keep functioning, just keep moving, just keep living, the body keeps the score, right? It tells us where we're at. And a histamine reaction sounds right up, right up the the alley of exactly what we're capable of. And again, I heard you talk about not quite having a network. And I, again, I just sort of feel like the ways in which that we live that are perfect for our life don't always work all of the time. Yeah. But it sounds like your dad was a good support to you during that time. He was a good support. I discovered later he was pretty angry with George for, in some ways, for being in denial. Now, I snuck read George medical medical records, so I knew the cancer had spread to his brain. So I did wonder if that was part of the issue. Yep. Um, You know, he didn't want to go to therapy or see a doctor or anything. I went to therapy a little bit especially after he passed, but I did a grief therapy, I did therapy first. And my dad was supportive and helpful. He was, he, but he also saw the situation as somewhat untenable. And I think he knew that George was dying kind of before I did, even though he didn't visit or anything, because again, he he had his own health issues going on then, but yeah. Yeah. And again, I think you're talking about the complexity of when you're the, not the griever and you're the support system of even when you can see you know, wow, this doesn't look good. George doesn't look good. They're not saying that he's dying. Whatever it is that you can see, your job is still to support the people that you love in the way, you know. And so it's it has this sort of trickle down experience, right? Of of what what is the truth of the system? And with death, the truth is that the person dies. And then 
We spend all this other time coming to understand what was going on. You know, we look back later and we're like, God, that's what that was. What was your experience after, after George died? It was really odd. I always feel like I split into two people because um, I was very shut down at that point and I was very angry Mm. and I was also very lost. Um, I've also read that, you know, when you have a big loss, sometimes it throws you back to other losses in your life. So, you know, I lost my mom at 10. So our house was in pretty bad shape, you know, with deferred maintenance and all from cancer. And George had been a do-it-yourselfer and never finished projects. So it was a mess. So during the days, you know, I just cranked. I mean, I got the house straightened out. I was fixing some leaks that were urgent. Like the bathroom was leaking into the dining room. That's not good. I mean, I had to deal with that. I was dealing with um, the the probate kind of stuff. You know, you'll never know how long it takes to put a car in your name. I recommend put it, put stupid cars in both your names. The house was easy. The car was ridiculous. You know, the banks, I did all that stuff. And you always get someone, oh, we need to talk to the accountant holder. He's dead. Oh, we can't help you. It's like, no, I'm sure you've had this situation. The way in which people are just like, oh, well then, sorry. Like, okay, well, I'm only doing this because my husband died. And people are like, oh, well, sorry about that. And and they're not sorry. You can hear that. I'm sorry. Yeah, I pulled the widow card. I remember I had a liaison, a nice man through George's work to straighten out his benefits and stock options. And the guy went, the guy paid this backhand and compliment. Well, he meant to be kind. He said, if my wife, if I die young, I want my wife to contact you because your tenacity is just so good. I'm like, okay. Well, anger can help in those situations. I think, yes. I think you know, most of the people that I speak to that talk about loss, anger comes up. And I think, you know, anger is sort of like that childhood friend that will step to somebody who's threatening you, even if they don't know what the situation is, they come in and they're like, don't you talk to her like that? You know, not even knowing whether you're the problem. The thing about the anger is though, is it just kind of creates these fights or this cycle of, of grippy, crunchy energy. And usually what's underneath it. And maybe that's why our system brings it to us is all the sorrow and the sadness right? It's like, I either I'm going to do this, you know, fight with the bank about the whatever, or I'm going to sit here and sob. And for many of us, we go back and forth between the two. Um, and the anger is helpful because it gets us, you know, to take a tone with the bank manager until they do what I needed them to do. Exactly. Yeah. I got a few people, one very, very nice pregnant woman. I remember at the bank, she, I thought I remember hugging her and she's like, I'm thinking, oh my God, she's pregnant. Maybe I shouldn't be hugging her. But she was like, you come down here and I'll help you. And she, you know, I, she was a sweetheart. So people, some people really were nice, but then I was very isolated. So I, at night I was alone in my house and I would drink and yeah. sometimes watch movies, listen to records. And I had anxiety attacks. I had PTSD. I found out later. So I was kind of a mess at night. Yeah. And that makes sense. And we've talked about this on the podcast too, that our bodies naturally respond to darkness as activating on our right side of our brain. They, they make us more anxious. And so those of us that have some anxiety, that's just like waiting to wake up and run around often five, six, seven o'clock we're having a glass of wine in the hopes of sort of, you know, elongating the period of time that I don't feel anxious, but wine is a depressant. And so once it begins to wear off, it actually makes the anxiety higher. And lots of people don't know that, you know, it's a system and a cycle that makes perfect sense right up until the fact that it doesn't really work very well. <laughs> you know, it works in the moment and then it doesn't. And then, um, so how, so how, what happened from there? You had PTSD. It sounds like I someone did. must have diagnosed you with that. You were managing your symptoms but I imagine, you know, you had some help with that. Like, how did you go from, from there to where we find you today? It took a while, you know, um, part of what happened is I realized that I couldn't live a life that was that isolated. So I did begin to do a few modest things like, um, going to a yoga studio and Mm -hmm. making some, some friends there and having a teeny bit of structure. So, okay. At five o'clock, I go to class. I say hi to the nice people. I would, I would see my dad in the afternoons, George's parents after a while, they stepped in and they would take me out to lunch on the weekend. 
which was actually very kind of them. Um, so I just kind of made a few more connections here and there. But I'm going to be honest, because I think it's important to talk about the mistakes we make when we're grieving. You know, mm -hmm. I was very alone. And I hadn't had a lot of joy in my life coming up on, you know, a while. And I did wind up in a relationship with actually one of George's caregivers who was younger, young guy. And that turned out not to be such a good thing. But for a while, I hung out with him. Before we were romantic, we were best friends. We went to lots of movies. He was a big movie buff. We'd go to the city. Yeah. We'd go to all these movies. We'd go to all this stuff. Um, and that that didn't turn out to be a healthy relationship. But for a while, I did that. And that was interesting to come back to life after having been so very shut down. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have a sense when you look at that? Because sometimes when I'm looking back across hard things and things that I wish, gosh, I wish I could have made a different choice there. You know, sometimes part of the pain of it is acknowledging like there wasn't a ton of other choice to be made. You know, if you're isolated and you retired at 40, which means you don't have like all your colleagues from work who are checking in on you every day because you don't have that work environment. Like, is there something when you're looking back that you wish or believe could have been different about that time? Like, you know, doubled up on yoga or I don't know, went to a widow's group or something. Do you look at that differently? Or do you just say, that's part of how I got there? I got from here to there. Well, I was really having anxiety attacks. So I being alone at night wasn't working for me. I mean, I just couldn't do it. I was driving over to my dad's at 3 a.m. You know, yeah. fortunately he's a night owl. So I grew up like more like midnight, but I would just, you know, go over there. There was about 10 minutes apart back then where I lived. And I really don't think I could have gotten through it without somebody to spend a lot of time with a, a grief group once a week, a therapy session, which I was doing once a week. That wasn't going to cut it. I was yeah. too anxious. I needed somebody to be essentially living with me. That was the only way I was going to get through this. I, I just think the truth of that is really real. And I think right now somebody is nodding their head and saying like, yeah, I mean, I knew rationally I was safe, but my body was totally dysregulated and I needed somebody, I went through a breakup in my twenties and I moved into a friend's apartment because I just couldn't tolerate the way that I felt in my body, even though I really did understand that other people went through breakups and that's not what happened to them. Other people went through breakups and they went clubbing and like bought new mm. leather pants, but mine was, <laughs> you know, I couldn't sleep. And I think you can do a lot of analysis on why that might be, but the reality is you still have to attend to the to the body that's having that hard time. So it sounds like even though maybe it wasn't something that you look back and think, wow, that took great care of me. It did take some care of you because it meant that you weren't alone at night. Exactly. You, yeah. I couldn't eat properly. I mean, I would either eat like a takeout meal for three people or I couldn't eat at all. I mean, yeah. I couldn't regulate. And just being alone with meals every night was extremely painful. Yeah. And not, never being touched. Yeah. It, it had been a long time. I, I, I think one of the reasons I turned to writing and kind of wrote my book in part is because I didn't feel that people maybe were talking about how terrible that felt to go for days on end without being touched, yeah. without someone to have a meal with. That's right. I, I feel like this is so undervalued in our society. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think, you know, we've had a million people, over a million people die of COVID during this time period, which has generated 9 million people who are grieving. And I think we look at that and there's death and there's grief. And it's really obvious to people that like, wow, we need more support because there's such a big number of us that are now sort of trying to learn this. It's like on the job training, I'm trying to learn how to grieve, but also there are all these people who spent two and a half, three years in their houses. So all that, what you're talking about, which is like nobody to touch, nobody to have dinner with nobody. There's this theory, you may be familiar with this, but there's this theorist whose name is Stephen Porges. And he talks about polyvagal theory. And essentially the nugget of it is that we're social creatures and that we regulate our bodies through the physical proximity of being close. So Zoom is pretty good, 
but it's not the same as sitting in a room with somebody and having, you know, an eye to eye contact and nodding. I mean, our bodies have all these little micro movements that have been wired in since we were babies for survival, which is I look at you, you smile and nod, and I feel better inside my body. And when, you know, the brain and the body are used to having a person, I'm in this house and there used to be a person in this house, it actually is threatening to no longer have that regulating. You know, it's like not having a heater, not having food. You know, it's a way in which my system gets fed and it's not getting fed anymore. And it doesn't know why it's not doing the analysis. It just knows that it's really hungry and starving. I think it's really important to talk about because we do a lot of shoulds with grief, particularly a lot of attitude about what makes a good widow and, and how you honor a husband's memory. And I've spoken to a number of widows on this podcast who, boy, did they get a lot of shit when they started dating. And, you know, boy, did, boy, did people have opinions about whether they waited too long or God forbid, and much, much worse, didn't wait long enough. When in reality, it's about your needs and how do we get them met? And there are plenty of people who, since they were small children, needed a lot of hugs and touches, right? I mean, that just is the truth of our bodies is that they have needs, not just sexual needs, but just needs. Yeah, nature, just companionship, companionship, loneliness. You know, I mean, maybe if I'd had a few close girlfriends who'd traded off staying with me and eating with me and, you know, being there if I woke up in the middle of the night, maybe I wouldn't have gotten into this particular, this relationship. I mean, yeah. but it wasn't, that wasn't my life. That wasn't a choice I had. Um, and we can't know those answers, right? Like we can't know, because the other thing I think that happens when you lose a primary person is, you know, we're all kind of a little bit defined by our relationship to people, right? Like my kids make me a mother. My husband makes me a wife. My, you know, clients make me a therapist. It's not that I can't be those things without them, but it's a dynamic that we're talking about. And it's really devastating. I mean, when my mom died, I was like, I don't even know what am I? Like, I don't need, you know, I'm not a daughter. I mean, she was the second of my two parents to die, but it was, it's very confusing. And when, when, what you're losing is the definition of partnership. I mean, who, who's to say that if it wasn't that relationship, you might not have had needed to feel that kind of partnership with somebody else anyway. Yeah, very much. I mean, I'd spent all my life, you know, first I was live with my dad, you know, as a daughter. And then I went right from there to living with my husband. So I was always half of George and Debbie. I mean, that's who I was. We were just half a couple. That's what we did. We did everything together. We didn't have much outside friends or anything that, you know, looking back, maybe that wasn't the best way to live. That's not how I'd want to live now, but yeah, that's, that's what there was. So I really didn't know how to do. I mean, I could function on my own at a practical level but I didn't know how to be on my own. I didn't know how to get through a night alone or get through days upon days alone. I, did, I didn't know how to do that. And I, I still wouldn't want to live that way. No, I think you're describing, it's worth pointing out that there is this period of time in grief that really is about finishing all the things that feel like you've lost them, right? Like all the adjunct loss and all the secondary loss. And you sort of just have to stand still like a really heavy rainstorm until that trickles mm. off. And then at some point you're sitting there and you're wet in all the grief and all the destruction and you've got to assess it. And, you know, that's broken irrevocably and maybe that can be preserved. There does come this time. And when we were talking off mic, you said, you know, I just, I really do want people to know that there is still a life after loss, but there does come a time where you're not sitting still only in the wet of the loss. You do start to put your feet on a path that's forward. It's, it's the after, you know, the before we can't have back, the present is overwhelming. And then it quiets a little so that you can do things like start dating or move, or I don't know, put their clothes in a box or something that allows you to say, this terrible, unbelievable, irrevocable thing happened and I'm still alive. So what was that period like for you? Like, how did you move into that? How soon after 
George's death, were you able to sort of, you know, begin to see your next parts of your life unfold? So probably about four months after he died, you know, I had a lot of the administrative stuff and done and, you know, the house was no longer falling down. Yeah. Um, and I started to look at trying to meet people and it was kind of funny. I mean, I joined a car club. I am not much of a driver, but that's <laughs> sort of what there was. I've lived in a, in a reasonably saw a suburban town. I try rotary, which yeah. again, I'm not really a Rotarian, but that was something, but I, I did, you know, yoga. yeah, I went to yoga classes and that resonated. And, you know, from there I do retreats or classes and I turned to writing. I'd always loved to write. When I'd retired from law before George passed, I was doing a writing class once a week with a sort of a local senior center. And I went back mm-hmm. to that. Um, and that was good. And from there, there were some more serious writers in the class and they invited me to join a writer's group. Oh, so exciting. And that gave me, you know, two days a week of things to look forward to and the same people to be with and accountability because, you know, we all brought writing and we read, read our writing. And That's these right. were really lovely people. So I started to feel some sense of connection. And, you know, from there, I joined a different yoga studio and there was a group of single women about my age, midlife. Wow. And they accepted me into their group. So then, you know, I started to have a tribe. I started to have more people to do things with and I was less alone and I was less fundamentally unhappy because, you know, my time with George at the end was terrible. Yeah. But I started to feel more gratitude for the time that we'd had together and a measure of relief that he was at peace. And I could start to see tiny pieces of things that were good. One yoga class, one walk that had flowers, just little things, but it started, I started to feel less like I wanted my life to be over as well. Yeah. That I've heard that before I've experienced something similar to that. And I, I think the, um, I think the notion that for you really what was so important was to find some people to be with sounds, you know, one of the things I ask grievers often is, are you someone that can, that can allow your feelings to really unfold by yourself? Like, do you, are you with your feelings? Do you meditate? Do you cry in the shower? Do you think deeply when you drive or, and I fall more into this category, is it better for you to do that in connection to others? you know, is it safer for you to talk to a therapist or be in a restaurant or talk to a friend or, and I think what's interesting about writing is that it is really this process oriented conversation with yourself, Mm -hmm. except that the minute you begin to share it with other people, it has this echoey me too experience, right? The minute somebody says, wow, this really landed with me, you know, this, you wrote this about your husband and it really meant something to me part of what you're doing is creating this like network, this web of people who are now connected to your loss. And I think writing is really magical that way. Tell us a little bit about the book. You know, were you writing it all this time? Did it, did you write it with your writer's group? What was the publishing process like for you? Tell tell us about the actual sort of being the author part. Oh, well, thank you. Um, What happened was I started to write bits and pieces. I wasn't thinking of writing a book. Um, I may be fairly competitive though, because I was blogging and a few years out after my loss, I started to submit things to publications Yeah. and I got some stuff published um, in places. And from there, I was still doing the writer's group and all. And I thought, well, and there were some of them are writing books. I thought it might be interesting to write a book. So I started to think about doing that. Yeah. And then, um, you know, now it was about 2017, 2018. It's been a while. I, I looked about 2017. I decided that um, I wasn't, my writing wasn't that great and I don't like writing in a vacuum. So I decided to look into getting an MFA, a master's of fine arts in writing. I love this so much. And I was trying to decide whether to go forward, but I, I got, one of my dreams came true. I did get a column in the New York times, modern love column, ah, I got a New York times, modern love. Love it. And that was about four and a half years ago. It was remember it was because of March 23rd, 2017 and March 24th had been my wedding anniversary, my my anniversary. How meaningful. And so I felt like that was a sign and that kind of propelled me forward. So I decided to do the MFA and worked, hired a really good editor. I'd been through a couple editors who were 
not real rigorous. I got a really hard, rigorous editor and tried to look at getting published. Yeah. And was that a, was that a rewarding process you know, we had a little conversation off mic about like hawking books is really terrible. Um, And it is, you know, you want, you want people to be able to engage with your story because the story is meaningful and you want to provide them support. And then also there's this whole business of selling books, which is really sort of tricky. Like you have to do both sides of the dance. Most authors that I know that's not, you know, they're not salespeople and they're not interested in that. And Certainly during the pandemic and, you know, all that has shifted. People are not going on book tours. There's a lot of people who are self-publishing, you know, the climate and the industry is really changing. What was that like for you? I'm sure there are other writers listening right now who are blogging or, you know, publish something on HuffPost and are like beginning to let themselves dream. Was it worth it for you? Was it validating you know, the jury's still out, yeah. to be honest. Um, yeah. I was in my final semester of my MFA and I was trying to get an agent. I really wanted an agent. And I'd had some indications earlier that that was an option for me. Now yeah. this was pandemic hit while yeah. I was trying this, but before it wasn't. And I couldn't get an agent. I'm going to be honest. I thought the book was well-written. I had a best-selling author as my editor and she was wow. an amazing, amazing editor. And she thought the book had a lot of promise, but I couldn't get an agent. And it was really disheartening because getting all those rejections, again, I am an organized kind of person. I was, I had lists of agents. I was sending this out. I tried in the past. I had, you know, all the stuff set up to do this. I was going on and on. It just wasn't working. I remember it was my birthday. I was in Santa Cruz with my, my current partner and I got a rejection from like the, the best, the, my best shot agency yeah. it was an agent that specialized in memoir. And I got up my birth. I said, this sucks. You know, I don't have to fucking do this. Yeah. And um, so I decided, so then I looked at a couple high, I sent the book off to She Writes Press, which is a hybrid publisher thinking, yeah. well, if this is that bad. Um, so yeah. be, and they said, hey, this is ready to go. We only get 7% of books that we think are, this book's ready. So I signed on with them. Oh, and um, thank you. And, you know, went through, went through that process, which has had its ups and downs, but it, the book is beautiful and it's, it's in a finished state and it's going to come out in a few weeks. So, yeah, you know, I love your honesty about it. And again, I think, um, I think, I think the vanity around writing <laughs> and publishing is really humbling um, both when you're watching other people be published and, and when you're taking what you think is your best work and people who, you know, know things in the world and the field who are encouraging you, nothing is real. There's no math in it. It's a lot of sort of, I think, unfolding and luck and who, you know, um, and so when you're, when you've put together something that's really beautiful, that you think could be meaningful to folks out there being the person who is devoted to getting it out there is a real gift to the people who are going to read it, right? That you've worked so hard to get it out is, um, I think a gift to the people who are going to, the story is going to resonate with. Tell us a little bit about, tell us about where you are now in 2022. You mentioned that you have a new partner and I think you're not living right where you grew up anymore. Can you just tell us what your life looks like now and maybe what it feels like? My life feels so much better now, um, so much airier. Four yeah. years ago, I, I did meet a guy online. Um, we connected very slowly. He was actually grieving the loss of his mother. So we kind of decided to help each other through that. And then that became more serious. So we've been together four years. He used to pick me up after my night classes at MFA. <laughs> and, Always a supporter. And then a little over a year ago, we moved in together and I left the home I'd been living in with my husband. And I moved to a little small town in Northern California near the water, which I'd always wanted to live near water and have a water view. That was one of my dreams. So that came true. Oh, and we are both really appreciate enjoying every day together and the moments that we can, we're both very focused on that. So that works very well for us. Yeah. Um, I love the hopefulness and the sort of, and element of it. Like I really still bristle when people say, oh, these good things came out of my tragedy. I'm not sure with my mom, my mom was 75 years old. I don't know that a 75 year old lady going to bed and not waking up is actually a tragedy, 
But I think there is an element in anyone's story and everyone's story, certainly yours, where this isn't what I signed up for and not what I expected. There is a chapter in the book somewhere down the line where what you can say is, this is good. I'm happy. And I think that's so important to tell grievers that are in that process of sort of no one's, no one is ever going to say to you, Hey, so great. That terrible thing happened to you. That's not the intent, but in trauma work, we talk about the bad thing happening as the trauma. We don't want to be traumatized, which means the bad thing happening is the last thing that happened, right? Like the last good thing that happened, happened before the bad thing was even there. And you know, you're living, you're living your life near the water, which sounds like it's really amazing. You're a published author, which sounds like it's really amazing. You've got a book coming and you have a new partner, which is also incredibly hopeful. Um, I think there's a part of us that would be wired for, well, I won't do that again since it hurt me so much the first time, um, except really we're wired for connection and we, you know, we want to keep, we want to keep loving, even though sometimes the love burns us. It sounds really, really lovely. I'll just remind my readers, you know, I get three copies of the book. If you want one, just DM me as soon as they're out, they're out. So, you know, I'll tell you, I don't have any more copies, but if you want one, let me know and I'll have them. I have not for the most part enjoyed the promotion journey, to be honest, except for things like this podcast, because I love talking to people. And I love talking like, like someone like you, who's so wonderful and compassionate. And I wouldn't have done that without the book. This has been such a lovely conversation. I am so grateful for the gift of your process that you give us with writing your words down so that people can, here's what I say about it. They can read them and think me too, or they can throw it across the room and say, that's not my story. I'm not reading this. And I think both are important. It's important to know that there's a really wide spectrum of um, stories out there and that for everybody that's grieving, authors who are here writing memoirs are doing that so that you can feel less alone because we know what it felt like to feel that alone. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's that kind of what I try to do on my Facebook author page. You can find me there. That's kind of where I'm the most present, but that's kind of where I try to say, okay, this is how I felt. This is, this is why it sucks, but, but that it gets better. Yeah. And again, I think it's a real truth and an honor. People write their books 10 years out, 15 years out, 20 years out, because you carry the grief and the loss. You learn to carry it. It's not as heavy and it's not as hard, but it doesn't go away. And so again, being someone who has some, some years between you and the event and giving us both your story, but also your wisdom is really important. This was such a lovely conversation. You were so generous with your time. I wish you and the book really good luck and I hope we'll stay connected. Thank you so much, Megan. I really enjoyed this and you're a wonderful interviewer, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. This is really, it was an honor to talk to you. Really good luck with everything and I hope the promotion feels less painful. Okay, take care, Debbie. Bye-bye. Bye.